0: Welcome to the Disruptive Mindset podcast. Join me, Emma Jones, as we take a deep dive behind the scenes of executives and leaders in the IT and the tech industries. We'll find out about their models for success, lessons they've learned, and what makes them disruptive in their businesses and sectors, and ultimately find out how it can help us. Enjoy. Welcome to the Disruptive Mindset Podcast. I'm your host, Emma Jones, and today I want you to get ready to deep dive into the intricate web of innovation and disruption, and our esteemed guest, Gala Boschvik. As a renowned expert in the field of fintech, Gala has dedicated her career to understanding the ever-evolving landscape of financial services. With a wealth of knowledge spanning across various industries, She has become a sought-after speaker, thought leader, and advisor in the fintech community. In this podcast, we unveil the mysteries behind the digital revolution that is reshaping the financial industries, from blockchain to artificial intelligence. She will take us on a journey through the latest trends, challenges, and opportunities that define the fintech ecosystem. But what sets Carla apart is her unwavering commitment to making finance more inclusive and accessible to all, She is an actively advocate of diversity and inclusion within the industry, challenging existing norms and empowering individuals to participate in the financial world. So, whether you're a seasoned professional or a curious newcomer, join us to explore the world of FinTech with Gala Bosfi. Prepare to be inspired, informed and enlightened as we uncover the secrets to more inclusive, technologically advanced financial future. Now let us dive in. The first question I've got for you today is: What's the earliest context or significant piece of information that we need to know to understand you and all you've accomplished?
1: Oh, see, this is this is the challenge because I don't see myself in the as others would. So it's hyper, it's hyper subjective. And this is a really, this is hard. Uh, I prefer the work to speak for itself rather than me to speak for myself. But I would say the one piece of information, and I'll be honest, I breezed over that question when you sent it over because it's entirely uncomfortable. I, I have first sight, I see things as they are. And so I will call things as they are. That's the first piece um I refuse to sugarcoat I will try to be diplomatic but I refuse to sugarcoat and I refuse to not call a spade a spade and that's the only thing that matters is it true is it real and that's that's the only thing I'm concerned with so yeah that's probably the first piece of information it's authenticity
0: you see how it is you say it how it is
1: if you want to call that authentic, yes. It's just, I, I, I want to say realism. It's all about realism. It, it's real. It's either it's real or it's not. And if it's not real, not interested. Yeah. I mean, I love talking theory and all that sort of stuff, but if we're going to talk about something, it's going to be real. It's not going to be fluff. Yeah. And I don't like chit chat. I don't like small talk. It's not interesting to me. So maybe that's it. I, the things that I find interesting are important. And if we're not going to talk about something important, we're not going to talk.
0: OK, and uh, I mean, that's a really important thing to know about you, you know, <laughs> there's no messing. So, well, that's going to lead me really quite nicely onto my next question, because you, I've heard you speak because I've listened to a lot of your other um, podcasts and stuff that you've got out there. And you, you speak about um, inclusion a lot. Um, but what does it really mean to you? And, and where in, where are businesses winning and losing in this topic?
1: in your opinion because i know you've got a lot of you've got a lot of thought process around this well inclusion is do people belong do they feel like they are accepted do they th- feel like they are considered that's from a staffing and a human resource perspective do the teams actually uh have an open space they are accepting they are inclusive rather than exclusive and in that it really is about Do they actively seek out people who are fundamentally different, that bring something different to the team, that the uniqueness that every individual has is allowed to flourish? Part of that is the willingness to also say, we're not going to do what is convenient and easy in the hiring process. We're going to look at ensuring that we have representation across the board, especially if we serve clientele that are incredibly diverse. And most businesses want to have as many customers as possible and as great as market share as possible. And in that, they have to acknowledge that it ain't just a small segment of the population that they serve. So part of it is, do our teams reflect our customer base? But also are we considering our customer base as we start to design? And do our teams that design product or structure product uh, or deliver services Are they also represented and reflective of our customer base? But does our customer base feel like we also are concerned about their daily challenges? And those daily challenges vary across different populations and different attributes and assets that people have are not common across the board. I think of it as quantity theory in practice. Right. So there's something that Will self-wrote a book called Quantity Theory of Insanity, which was basically insanity distribution varies based on attributes daily. It could be blue eyes one day. It could be blonde hair the other day. It could be um, long fingernails. It could be short stubby toes. It could be anything, any attribute, physical or emotional or psychological, that the distribution of insanity was fixed or that the amount was fixed, but the distribution would change. And I feel like that's very much how population is and how market segmentation is and customer bases are, that they can change and fluctuate based on attributes. But those attributes are also associated with privilege and advantages and a head start in life. So there's something called a privilege walk. I don't know if a lot of uh, your listeners have done one of these, but it's a set of questions that um, will determine sort of where you sit in the line of privilege. Everyone starts out at the same place. But based on certain things, it could be physical attributes. It could be familial composition. For example, if your parents are divorced, that's considered detrimental in terms of privilege. If you had access to dental care early on, that is privilege. If you were routinely fed three meals a day, that is privilege. If you had access to education and a library locally, conveniently, that is privilege. All of these different privileges that we have or different access to resources that we have growing up also determines our ability to access future resources and privilege is very, very skewed my best friend. White woman. PhD did a privilege walk with me and of course. The person that was furthest ahead was a a heterosexual, white, middle-aged male who had every advantage in the the book. But even a successful, what would one perceived privileged white woman actually ended up at the back of the room. In fact, she couldn't leave the room. There was no space for her to walk further back in that privileged walk because she would take a step back for every disadvantage. And think of people of color, Think of marginalized uh, communities. Think of those who are on the periphery and the fringe and who have not had legal privileges in the past, who have not been acknowledged as full human beings in certain legal documents in, in the past, and the disadvantages they have inherent just because they were born into a particular family or a particular community, and yet... Businesses that don't recognize that privilege is different for each one of their consumers, let alone each one of their colleagues. Anybody from the talent pool has a different perspective or a different understanding of what that looks like, and to not make sure that they are all included in the discussion, so that you can get a reflection of what those those experiences, those disadvantages, those challenges, and that gap in the privilege actually looks like. Then how can you possibly understand The client base that you're serving. Let alone, how do you understand the people you're working with? And if you are an organization that has purpose, how can you align to a purpose if you don't understand the privilege that's distributed across your entire talent pool? That, to me, is most important: is do we actually reflect the community that we serve? And if you don't make efforts to do that, and to recruit, and to create a culture that says you belong, and I recognize you as a human being that deserves dignity and respect as a baseline and that you have interesting insights that I will never understand because I've not walked in your shoes. If you think about the billions of pairs of shoes that are out there and we only look at 1% of them at the very, how could you possibly, how could you possibly succeed without opening up your own perspective to try to understand? And how could you possibly connect on a purpose level on a service level or create product that actually has meaningful impact if you don't have inclusion and include those perspectives and those lived experiences. Mm. So quite frankly, it's also bland and uninteresting. It's milk toast. milquetoast, yeah. and it only appeals to a very, very narrow segment of the population, which is antithetical to doing business because you want to appeal to as wide a swath of people as possible. So just from a philosophical perspective, I think it's critical. We also know that there's a business case for it and we can get into some numbers, but I don't think that's as important as starting from a philosophical point of view because business should actually be human centric. Uh,
0: it, it should be so human centric, but I think with a lot of these large corporates and a lot of these businesses, you know they they are run on spreadsheets. You know I've worked in large corporates. You you've worked in corporate many many years, and you know there's an element that they are on a, run on a spreadsheet. I mean, do you see companies starting to ask these difficult questions and to look at things from a different point of view? And and you know you've got Gen Z coming very quickly in from this direction. You know how is it all going to change?
1: Well, I think. Yes, they have to, and some of it's performative, but I think most of them accepted that DEI has to be an aspect of their approach. That there is a strategy uh, to be to be executed that includes diversity, equity, or equality and inclusion. And quite frankly, it's a, again it's a matter of talent and talent recruitment. And as we age out of some of these older mindsets and start to have to think about a much more diverse. Set of younger people coming on and onboarding them. Um, I mean, I'm Gen Z. I'm not Gen Z. I'm Gen X.
0: <laughs> Sorry,
1: yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm one of those things. I'm like Gen,
0: Gen Z. We might have we might have our knees back. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I, if I can be if I can be reincarnated, it ain't a bad generation to be you know to be yeah. part of because they are automatically uh, in a world that is fundamentally different than what we grew up and they're seeing representation across the board, but they're also understanding that they're inheriting all of the problems that we have created and that we are complicit in some of the crises that they're facing from a cost of living crisis to a climate crisis um to uh, education resources all of that right they're they're looking at having to deal with a world that's basically a dumpster fire politically socially economically and they have to work together to 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 reverse some of the the <laughs> the negative in the negative consequences of our actions, and those of us who are also part of this—we want a better world. We actually should be leaving a better world um, than what we we arrived into. Are also understanding that you have to do it collaboratively, and collaborative means community, and community means everyone. It cannot just be a narrow fraction of the population that att- that, that faces into these challenges or problems and if you're thinking i can do it alone or i can do it with the people that i'm comfortable with and familiar with and they look like me and they talk like me and we're actually going to make ourselves have this little nice little pocket of convenience and try to ignore the other parts of it that actually creates additional challenges and it's it's a systemic problem for all intents and purposes that we are only concerned with the immediate but we're global at this point right we've moved from 40 50 years ago of thinking just for the neighborhood to looking at global impact. And global also means that it looks very different from us. Mm -hmm. So we have to work together to face into global crises. And you don't do that by only looking at your interests. So companies that are trying to Look for future-proofing their existence, aside from practices and innovation that allow them to continually think about cannibalizing their current revenue streams and lines of business by creating something new and it, you know, always evolving and having the evolution mindset with a tinge of revolution. So it, it's it's quick and it's accelerated and it's responsive. They also have to do that with their workforce. They can no longer have the same philosophy if they're going to actually exist. Mm. Evolution now is very different. It is not a slow, slightly moving thing that that goes at very steady, comfortable pace. The acceleration timeline is, is... I mean, it's exponential. You have to be responsive in such a way that requires community and collaboration. And that also means looking cross-generation, cross-culture, cross-geography, cross-experience, cross-privilege. And if you as a business don't do that, then you are literally etching out your tombstone and putting the dates fixably in there. Mm -hmm. So part of the strategy of business is how do we react to market forces, but also how do we stay on the edge of whatever trend is, whatever um, the zeitgeist happens to be? and what are the needs that we're going to have to respond to? What you have what you what you create today or what you produce today is not going to be in demand tomorrow. And your consumer of today is not going to be the same consumer tomorrow. That's an absolute truth. So how do you maintain flexibility and adaptability and respond? at pace and at scale, you don't do that by having narrow, rigid structure that only looks at self-interest because that self-interest has a death knell. It has a death date on it. And it also means you limit your, your opportunities, your, uh, your ability to move and your ability to respond. It's like voting against your interests because you want to punish another community or another group because you're uncomfortable with them, or you don't, they don't they make you uncomfortable. They create anxiety for you. They're not familiar. Punitive, exclusionary responses, we're seeing it play out in the political sphere that that is slowly declining. They're slowly losing their support because voting against self-interest just to exclude or just to penalize another outgroup, is fundamentally backwards if you want to exist tomorrow. And also if you want to garner wider support and attract the younger generation it has been raised in a way that that they see injustice very clearly. And they're very attuned to that because they're often on the receiving end. They don't have the same opportunities we did 20, 50, 70 years ago. So businesses who also have that mindset of being exclusionary rather than inclusive are going to die off and quite frankly, good. (laughs) Yeah
0: fine I, I couldn't i couldn't agree with you more you know we are seeing a, you know a swathe in the in the leadership firm um, home you know it's a, it's a new generation of leader it's not a manager it's they want leadership skills and you know and, and this and, and this is such an in, i think it's a really interesting conversation around inclusion you know and not just looking at oh we just want women you know to, to make up our numbers which is often what you get in it in, in in large it companies you know just you know but actually it's not inclusion is a, is is a much bigger topic word and I think that's
1: some well I mean think think about it leadership also comes from anywhere in the chain so I remember going through an exercise years ago this was incredibly eye opening and I still haunts me to this day was doing a ropes course in the mountains in the middle of winter of course (laughs) one does. and of course a number of different exercises but one of them was to get from from a to to be. And there was a little bit of a stream in the way, but it was a bit rocky and hilly and and not a straight path, but they chose to line up about 50 of us. And we all stood hands on shoulders in front of me, but blindfolded, we were all blindfolded and we were tasked to get ourselves from point A to B. And there would be somebody designated as a leader. They would be touched on the shoulder and they would turn, they would guide the group. And we didn't know who would be chosen that was randomly done. And, and of course, you know, someone would take two or three minutes and then the next person would be tapped on the shoulder and they would, you know, guide the group for the next bit, et cetera. And you had the option of stepping out of the line or remaining in, but you took your, you were the only one that was unblindfolded at that point. You were the only one with sight and I got tapped and I was probably dead center of the group. And great. So I'm the only one can see. I call out instructions. I give encouragement. I'm really, really good with the positive reinforcement. You're doing great. You guys have handled this. This is fantastic. You, we can we can move slowly and steadily. Don't worry about rushing. Make sure that the person around you is okay, et cetera. And after my, my time was done, my blindfold goes back on and we proceed forward. And at the end, of course, we do a debrief. And we give feedback to one another, but also those that are guiding us through the course give us feedback. And my feedback was, Gela, amazing on looking forward, but you didn't even bother to turn around and look behind you to see if the rest of your team was okay. You only looked forward. You never looked. You looked at half. You didn't look at the other half. And my gut curdled because I had thought it was comfortable, it was easy, there was no problems, nobody fell, everybody was steady, it was okay, and I contributed. And I had neglected half of the people that I was supposed to be a caretaker of. Mm. And holy cow, that one hurt. But
2: mm.
1: what, was, what was also interesting is that exercise showed that we could be anywhere in that chain mm. and be a leader. It could come from somebody at the very end, it could be at the very beginning, it could be anywhere in between. And that leadership was about ensuring custodianship of the team wasn't just about the outcome. It was ensuring that the people around and the people that are are taking the journey with you are okay, safe and comfortable and trust that the leadership will actually ensure that that's the case. And so leadership can come from anywhere. You don't have to have 40, 30, 20, 10, five years of experience. You can be brand fresh new and have brand new eyes that see something differently. Leadership comes at any point in the chain and at any time. And for us to think that there has to be an archetype for a leader is to ignore 99% of leadership. So I do think that organizations that are interested in culture first and inclusion as part of that culture IT specifically don't look at binary solutions. They look for leadership across the board. Mm-hmm. And they look at attributes and characteristics of someone's character, not necessarily skill sets, because skills can be taught, but character can't.
0: Exactly.
1: And if you are looking at all types of abilities, you would want to also look at all types of physical abilities. I think we often neglect talking about those with disabilities as part of inclusion. And yet, they have insights, lived experience, and challenges that, for those of us who are sighted or hearing or physically comfortable, mobile, we don't think about those things.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And if we also think about mental health, one in four people is experiencing a mental health crisis at the moment. They are having challenges around mental health. And it's guaranteed that in our lifetime, we will have that. Every single person will run into mental health challenges, whether or not they're required medication to course correct or counseling to course correct, whatever it happens to be, we, we all of us will experience it. And we also don't talk about mental health as a component of inclusion and making sure that's the case, because, again, it doesn't matter where you are or how you are. Sometimes even where your mental state happens to be, you can still be a leader and you can still contribute. And so finding a way to craft spaces that are safe for those that are, again, on the fringes or marginalized also means that we start to include their creativity, their insights and their leadership in a way that if you don't, you're missing out on some exceptional, exceptional quality contribution. And quite frankly, it also means that you're setting yourself up for exclusion if you do that. Because you give permission to others to exclude.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. And the moment you start to exclude is the moment you set yourself up for that exact experience with others, which is I think something we don't often consider. Mm -hmm. It's that the behavior we condone in ourselves is the behavior that we permit others to execute upon us, Mm -hmm. which means the more discriminatory, the more exclusionary, the more, the more limited and judgmental the more that we are on the receiving end of that same. I think
0: think there's a lot of companies that have got a lot of work to do. That's where I'm going with this, but I want to ask you a little bit about, because you're a self-proclaimed sort of FinTech fanatic, Right? we we know that, Um, and it would be really good for our listeners to understand sort of your point of view on what is disrupting the industry, because you're at the forefront of this at the moment.
1: Ah, so I have a bit of a I have a bit of existential crisis with fintech, because it was 15 years ago when it was really starting to get hot. It was fundamentally about changing the world and changing the nature of things, and making sure that finances were democratic, so to speak. And I think it's lost its way a bit. It's turned into a bit more of a fundraising exercise. There's a lot more ego in it, and companies are now really about the unicorn status rather than the output. So I have a bit of a, I have a bit of a um, disenchantment with the state of the industry because it has become, it's, it's no longer as revolutionary as it once was. Mm. Purpose is no longer there to change the world. The purpose is to make money. So I'm frustrated with that. And I think what's interesting now is trying to course correct for that. AI, of course, is one of the hot topics across the board, and AI and financial services has obviously been uh, a, an essential component of its transformative potential for years. And we talk about AI and machine learning and making, making decisions and uh, looking at training, you know, training those algorithms on diverse data sets and all of the challenges that come with the unconscious bias around algorithms and data set training, et cetera, et cetera. And I've been talking about that for years and trying to course correct for that but it's really about making money. And money is not a dirty word, but is that something that shifts the needle in the way finance will roll itself out going forward? And we're running into regulation, trying to answer some of these bigger questions rather than industry saying, I fundamentally want to transform. So, looking at, say, access to credit and financial inclusion and cost of living crises, and all of the, and some of these things as they start to intersect, uh, there's great potential to ensure that people are able to access the right product and right service at the right time. And yet, we're still looking at unicorn status amongst the fintechs themselves and becoming a bit more of the establishment. And it's great in terms of actually getting banking to change the nature of everyday retail banking and small business banking. Let's leave investment banking and institutional banking aside (laughs) for a minute. But look at what you and I as consumers and small business people, owners would, would be concerned with. It's how do I actually ensure that my Bank can serve me in a way that's responsive and they meet me on my journey where I am, rather than me having to search it out or trying to figure out what's right for me. That's changed because banks have now started to better adopt and better collaborate and looking at themselves as also fintechs in a way of responding to those needs. So there's been a slow change in evolution in what banking has done in terms of responsiveness and personalization, meeting me where I need I am in my journey, starting to design around the the life events most people have, looking at providing a home, not a mortgage; looking at providing a space for family, not a mortgage; looking at facilitating mobility instead of a car loan; those sort of things. Um, making sure that I can I can afford paying for something. the the payment doesn't cost me an arm and a leg. That I'm not eating that cost as a consumer, um, because it costs so much to make a payment. You know, improving those sort of things. Mm. Uh, in improving and understanding credit, maybe a bit more financial literacy, trying to educate the, the population on what they're doing and how finances can can work for them. But also looking at uh, you know fairer lending and including more people in in access to credit, uh, not necessarily you know penalizing someone for living in a neighborhood or a postal code that has traditionally not been included in 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 um, as a good credit space, right? Not penalizing someone for having an ethnic name in the credit decision, that sort of thing. But I think FinTech still requires a moral reset and is, is needs to really go back to purpose. And there's a bit of an identity crisis. Mm. And part of that is it's also become really much more difficult for women and people of color to get funding to found some of these purpose-driven business ideas that they're trying to bring to market. And when you're looking at women And women of color increasingly having challenges in fundraising and getting less and less and less of the venture capital, then you are, again, creating an industry that's that's set up to fail and is exclusionary. Mm. And you're looking at people of color who are trying to found companies also getting less uh, venture capital or equity, debt equity, financing, or fundraising access, even angel uh, investment they're getting less and less. The COVID crisis is part of that, right? And of course, there's contraction in the market and now capital of, uh, there's no such thing as quantitative easing at this point, it's quantitative tightening. But still they're getting less and less proportionately of the funds that are out there. That those ideas that are inclusive are also being excluded from coming to market. That to me is a frustration. So despite the fact that I am a fintech fanatic and I think technology has the potential to fundamentally change the engagement model in our finances and has an opportunity to lessen the, or to decrease the degree of damage that the fourth, fourth industrial revolution will have and is having on us, despite it being a tech problem anyway. Um, I'm concerned that there's there's a, a retraction in the philosophical and moral center of FinTech and that concerns yeah. me.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I think women in it, I think it's always been pretty bad for women to get funding uh, for things anyway. So, you know, to hear that it's on the decrease is 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 pretty depressing, you know? Um, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, you sit on the advisory board for the Financial Conduct Authority.
1: Uh, the the Innovation Advisory Group.
0: Ah, Innovation Advisory. Very
1: specifically, okay. I'm not their advisory board, but their Innovation Advisory Group. I am on the board for that.
0: Okay, so. Could you tell our listeners um, the sort of primarily primary regulation concerns around fintech? You know, how does the FCA balance the needs of the governance without impending sort of it's sorry, impeding innovation in that?
1: Well, one thing is they do actually have a an entire innovation department that is concerned with us, that is looking at how to foster creative approaches within the regulatory perimeter and what sort of, and thinking about future regulation, what they do need to understand about uh, aspects of technology and aspects of the business model that would allow them to craft policy and to think about these things in a more holistic way, rather than being reactionary, they're thinking about it as it's coming along. So the innovation team is actually going through its own uh a bit of a reset in their, their capabilities in developing and ensuring that the capabilities that they've already built are fit for purpose, which is absolutely fascinating because the FCA was one of the very first regulatory authorities globally to set up an innovation department itself and to think about engaging with technology in a different way. They are considered to be one of the most progressive regulators in the world and are considered gold standard. So for them to actually look at their innovation models and their capabilities and in, in continuing to improve and engage, uh, engage with industry around that is in my mind, an incredibly impressive and progressive thing to do. The thing is they're looking at some of these evolving technologies. How do you start to consider regulating AI? How do you consider regulating the data sets that are potentially consumed by this? A lot of regulation actually now is focused on outcome. So it's examining not just process, but it's examining the output and the outcome. And so they have digital sandbox, they have the regulatory sandbox, they have innovation pathways, they have tech sprints, they have a number of different components that are focused on creating a holistic view for them around emerging technologies and the outcome of these of what the technologies can produce. So a lot of it is very much in the conversation as early as possible Mm. and understanding what the outcome would be and regulating to the outcome. Regulation by nature is slow. It often lets the genie out of the bottle and tries to pull the genie back in, Mm. but the nature of regulation is that way. And unless you have entirely proscriptive something before you allow it to go to market, there's no possible way of seeing what good, bad, or ambivalent outcomes can be. I think the FCA has a, a, like I said, an incredibly progressive approach to this in that they also engage with industry as early as possible in the concepts, which is part of the tech sprint. You know, starting with the tech sprint, involving industry, inviting participation, looking at that hackathon sort of thing, mm. following it through into how do we get it into uh, a sandbox where they can play with synthetic data and we can actually monitor that outcome. We can see how it works. They unpick they un- the black box for us to see what that looks like inside. And then we see what the outcomes are. And how do we also see the benefits of that moving all the way through to a regulatory sandbox where you actually have live customer data and it's in production in a very limited way, where we can test this before it rolls out to market. Mm. And asking those incumbents and the challengers and the FinTechs, but even the intermediaries to participate in every step of that and to work with, educate the regulators about the potential business model and what that looks like, but also to look at the outcomes and start to shape the policy based on the outcomes before it has permission to go live in market. Mm. That to me is, is in a way, the best, the best approach for regulation. And in terms of fintech and what's coming, a lot of it is around AI. Mm. There's still some interest in crypto and, and digital assets, <clears throat> but most of it is around data sharing mm. and the mobility and, um, and portability of data and how data sharing across different actors is going to affect outcomes. Because it's no longer about just the single product and service, it's about the data sharing. And there's a lot of attention being given to open, open finance, put open digital economies, open data, and that data exchange. It's no longer necessarily about the limited fiduciary instrument. It's about how the data and the data sharing and that access and permission to consent insight that comes with data sharing Uh, how that will start to change the nature of products and services. And they're very interested in examining that as well. So I think it's, as a regulator, it's not about forecasting what you need at the moment being prescriptive, but it is about understanding the evolution of the different models. And right now with tech, it's not just tech because algorithms are, Ancient—it's a set of assumptions that just happen to be math, math, you know, in a mathematical form. And cryptography is nothing new; we've been doing it for centuries. Um, it's it's the facilitation of that and the speed of that that technology is. So, looking at the speed and scale of data sharing and data insights, and that the mobility and portability is probably the most important thing a regulator can look at. Yeah. I think they're being responsive to that and understanding that open this notion of open data sharing is one of the crucial bits so paying attention to that but again you can't forecast and you can't crystal ball it so you have to do it as it's rolling out but being as responsive as possible not reactionary but responsive
0: yeah so it's, all, it's almost like they're standing alongside innovation really and and helping to innovate but doing it in a regulatory um well
1: looking at it from a regulatory lens right and so you've got something called gfin which is the global regular uh, global financial innovation network which is composed of all regulators not all but Only of regulators. Mm -hmm. And the notion of sharing those sort of insights and experiences, but also jointly engaging in exercises around this sort of stuff. So there is a GFIN um, uh, tech sprint that's coming up. And I can't remember exactly the the hypothesis that they're they're shaping, but they've done this around cross border. They've done this around cross border payments, around KYC, around anti um, anti fraud, anti crime, uh, certainly around um, anti money laundering and 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 terrorist financing. They're engaging in things in a global sense, but they're also doing it collaboratively. So they're looking at those problems, multi jurisdiction with industry, multi jurisdiction coming together. So. There was um, uh, an anti-money laundering one done last year in the summer where you've got multiple regulators, but you also have industry showing up. So you've got banks from the UK, from Israel, from the US, from Germany, from Singapore, all coming together and fintechs from those same markets all coming together to tackle this question and and think about this in a a global, organized, constructive way. But the responsiveness is, regulation has to be more innovative anyway. It has to respond to this. And so setting up structure and mechanisms and processes that allow you to, alongside industry, develop those products and services jointly, Not, not necessarily in a commercial sense, clearly, but understanding what the outcome is and what the purpose of those services and those new business models are that's the way regulation is being innovative is actually trying to be responsive rather than retroactively reactive.
0: Mm, really interesting. I think it's interesting to, you know, uh, to see, well, I mean, it's just all moving so quickly, but uh, you know, so I want to, I want to know, cause obviously looking at um, you know, some of your stuff that, you, that you've got out there and I, this is a statement that, that really, um that I that I hear you say and it's know who you are like know who you are as an individual and it has become quite polarized over the years um a couple of years really and I wanted to understand you know what does that statement actually mean to you
1: you have to know who you are before you know what you can do or what you should be doing so what you are determines what you do And that goes for business and that goes for individuals. So for me, it's knowing what my character is, what what I am in the sense of what qualities and characteristics and, and attributes that I have and what I rely on. And that then helps me map my purpose. It tells me what I should be doing and how I should be doing that. But for business, this is also the case. I do a lot of pitch coaching. And I was asked what, you know, it's what do you do, why you do it? And then how do you do it? And I'm not interested in the how until you can tell me what and why. And the what and why is essentially what you are. And the how is how you do it, it's the doing. So until you tell me what you are, I'm not interested in how you do what you do. It's irrelevant until I understand the purpose of that, of the, of the of you. And for businesses, it's, it is fundamentally, who are you in the context of your customers? And who are you as an organization culturally? But as an individual, it's very much, who are you? What are those things that that you rely on internally? Your, your qualities and characteristics that then you choose to present to the world? Because those things will facilitate what you end up doing. And they'll also determine the fashion in which you do them and does that mean they have integrity from the get-go or is it an empty exercise and performative does it basically it is that question of authenticity are you authentically here and are you present and i think it also is very much of when you who are you and why are you here who are you gives me the presence And tells me that you are actually in the space with me. And there's opportunity to connect. And it also tells me about how you see yourself and you see your place in the world. And it helps me give context to you. And you, you actually provide that for me. You give me a reason and a justification and a validation of your existence. And it allows me to recognize you on the map of my world. And I can now see you. And if I see you, I can witness what you do, and I can choose to step into that as well. Mm-hmm. And I can then enlist myself in the things that you're doing. I choose to join you in this mission or join you in this activity or join you on this journey. But I don't want to do that until I know who you are because I want to know who I'm I'm walking alongside with. Yeah. Yeah. And but it also means it gives purpose, it gives, A framework. It gives it gives a recognizable form. And recognition is one of those things that we all need. We need to be recognized, but we also need to recognize others in order for us to actually do anything with them. Mm. So it's a first principle for me. Know who you are. But that also means that you know that you have value, that you are important, that you cannot be diminished, that you deserve baseline respect, and that you are capable of contributing not just as an exercise to live but to actually live and it makes you a human being and i think a lot of us struggle with figuring out who we are because we take the messages that bombard us that are almost that are hypercritical and there's not a lot of gentleness with ourselves But also a lot of us haven't been shown that gentleness by others that we don't necessarily have mentors or role models or nurturers. And how do you do that for yourself becomes the critical question.
2: Mm.
1: So we have to step into that space for ourselves. And I think that's part of the self-actualization journey of just living, existing. But the earlier you recognize who you are and know that you are all things, you are, you are kind, you are compassionate, you are lovable, you are generous, you are intelligent, you are curious, you're powerful. Alongside of all the other things that I also am, which is sometimes egocentric, sometimes insecure, sometimes very selfish. But I can moderate that. But I am all things. So what are the things that I draw on that make me who I am? Or help help me show up to someone else? How do I show up for someone else is also based on But how I show for myself is also based on those characteristics. So the notion of accepting that you deserve to be here, accepting that you are a valuable member of the community and society and that people value you and will miss you you if your absence is felt and that you have a wealth of capability to draw on and that you are able to learn from experience and have insight, not only acquire knowledge but transform that into wisdom, that those things help you start to understand you as an individual better. But I also challenge everyone to to, to take those qualities and identify the ones that they really draw on the most. And then that actually helps figure out what purpose is, what you really are meant to be doing, what gives you deep satisfaction emotionally, but where you see contribution, where you actually see the productivity and you see something tangible and that output is good and you see the quality of it. And it does have quality. Quality in the context of Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance, for example, if anyone hasn't read the book, do it, one of my own awesome favorites. I read it every few years just as a refresher. There's this notion of quality and it's indefinable, but we recognize it. We know it because quality recognizes quality in you, our quality. So it's that recognition of quality, but it helps map to that thing that, that the activities, your daily practices, your daily efforts, the purpose, how you can transform those characteristics into action. And that's purpose. And I go back to, if you don't know what you are, you don't know what you're doing. So hopefully that closes the circle on that particular thing but it's a lot I,
0: I think it does no but I think I think you know what you've said I think it takes time to get there as, as an individual because I think a lot of you know male whoever you are you know we can all sit with um you know our inner voice you know and our inner voice can be very unkind to us sometimes you know and I think we have to be very aware of that but I think as you sort of move through life hopefully you know you, you get to where you are at the moment which is like know yourself know your value know what you are good and bad and 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 choose to moderate you know but I I do think sometimes it takes and I think the younger you can get to that mental coaching bit yeah uh, you know that helps you figure all that out you know you, you you can just go through your career in a little bit more of a maybe a calmer way or not so anxiety ridden, you know, which
1: yeah. No, it, it you which know? it, it, it takes, it takes time, right? It takes time. But I remember being introduced to the notion of you realize everybody's thinking about themselves. They're not thinking about you. They're actually not focused on you. They're more worried about how you perceive them than they are about you. Mm. They're worried about being judged and you're spending more of your energy and more of your time also worrying about being judged. And if you realize that they're actually not judging you, they're judging themselves through the context of you. It's like, oh, oh, wait a minute. So people don't actually care about me in that sense. They really don't care. No, they don't. They don't care about you at all, Gela. In fact, they don't think about you at all. Really? Really? They don't care. Oh, I can get away with more now. I can do what I want now. I don't have to worry about them thinking about me. And I just, that, that concept sort of flipped the switch for me. was, they're not thinking about you. They're thinking about themselves in the context of you. You were, you were, you were the judge and the validator of them. Mm. They're more worried about how you, what you think of them than they are about you. Mm. They're not thinking about you. And I thought that that was freedom. That notion of it's also not my business, what you think of me. Mm. It's not my business, nor is it your business, what I think of you that also sort of transformed up and it was an easier thing to to stop judging in that sense right so i started i started being a little more gentle with myself as like actually no one you're invisible so go ahead and be like you would if no one were you know were watching be be the thing that you wanted to be because no one's actually looking at you and in a way that also sort of oddly gave me permission to take up more space mm. I am what I am. I can't change it. Physically, I can't change. Yes, I could. I could probably lose, you know, a few kilo here and there. <laughs>
0: right? And, uh, you
1: know, I, I could, I could take better pains with my appearance, but here's the funny thing. I realized I physically can take up space and I deserve to take up that space. And because they're only thinking of themselves, they're not thinking about me and my space. So I can take up the space that I need to take up. And that helped me relax into me. It was also really interesting the language people use and, and how judgmental it can be against themselves and hearing that and realizing that they're doing their own self critique. I don't need to do anything Mm -hmm. to critique doing it on their own Mm -hmm. also meant that I could be lazy in the judgment space. I didn't have to judge because somebody else was doing it for them already. And it was themselves. And it also, it was uh, becoming more sensitive to how I spoke to myself. Mm -hmm. And yes, I beat myself up all the time because I can't. At the same time, I also recognize why would you do that? Yeah.
2: It's,
1: it's, it's not worth it. Now, if you coach yourself through learning from that thing, that's a much healthier relationship with yourself rather than the constant, you know, berating and you're terrible. Is this it's that your thing it's, I, So I remember my mother, my mother bakes quite a bit and, um, and I remember being around the kitchen table and she'd forgotten something in the bread and she called herself stupid. Oh, I'm so stupid. And I got violently angry hearing my mother call herself stupid. And I yelled at her, which is apparently not a good thing, but, but I'll do it anyway. And I said, thank you for being the worst example in the world to me. Thank you for, for that terrible example. You are a terrible, terrible example. And I'm learning from you. So I don't think you're stupid. And leaving out an ingredient in bread is not stupid. It was a dumb thing to do, but it doesn't make you dumb. Mm. And thank you for showing me what not to do, mom. Mm. And I remember having that constantly as a, and it hurts me that my mother does this. It hurts Mm. that she will say this about herself. But I remember getting so angry because my mom's not dumb. Mm. And it hurts to watch you love be that critical of themselves. Mm. And I thought I never want to do that to myself, mm. nor do I want to do it to anybody else. Mm. And yeah, it stuck with me. I mean, come on, nearly 50 years of this, you know, and can't believe I'm getting emotional about telling another story. Like, I get emotional about my family all the time. I love them.
2: But my mother.
0: It's hard, it's hard to it's hard to see it with people that you love that yeah. you think and, you know i i absolutely get that completely and especially when it's family because families are so emotive aren't they do you know what i mean and you just want the best for them genuinely um you know so i i, I get that and it's a difficult message
1: it's but a- this is the, yeah and it, it's a hard one but it goes back to the notion of of gentleness with self and learning earlier rather than later to be more gentle with self and to do the work to get to know who you are but it's, it, again, it goes back to that, that notion of no one's thinking of you. They're thinking of themselves. And I, I find that also to be true. I mean, I, I remember doing an exercise specifically calling attention to every time I thought about someone thinking about me and trying to digest my own inner dialogue about why would I, why, why am I assuming they're thinking about me?
2: Mm.
1: Why am I assuming they're thinking this about me? when in fact, they probably aren't. Mm. And if it was someone I trusted, I would ask, Mm. what were you thinking about in that moment? Mm. And inevitably it wasn't wasn't about me or it wasn't critical about me if it were. And kind of doing that survey and getting the proof points that people aren't thinking about me was totally reassuring, Mm. which meant it gave me a lot more bandwidth to think about other things and interesting things. And interestingly enough, it also, aside from being less self-judgmental, it also meant I was less judgmental about others mm. because I realized I also didn't know what was going on in their head and I didn't know where they were coming from. Mm. And I didn't understand the context of them. And I needed to create space for that. If I wanted to understand somebody and understanding somebody was more important mm. than having an assumption about them or deciding good, bad, or indifferent that I needed to create more space around that. Mm-hmm. So it helped with my relationships with others and also being more open, less judgmental, creating a different different atmosphere and space for them to be with me. That led to better quality of connection, better friendships, real, real connection and appreciation. And it transformed the way I interacted with others. But it also let me be a lot more gentle with myself. Yeah. So the earlier I think that we can A, get those insights, but B, also exercise those muscles and trying to really do it with a conscious practice that the easier it gets. And that transforms itself in the workplace. And it transforms how we show up in our careers. And it transforms how people see us and want to work with us. Mm. And that opens different opportunities. I think my career has been based on my work with others. It has absolutely nothing to do with me. It is where I've showed up for others that has always afforded an opportunity. I have been asked. I've had to look for for anything in the last twenty years. It's always been based on what I've worked with someone else that they've said, "Hey, this is a this is something. Would you like? Would you be interested?" I can't remember the last time I applied for a job
2: mm-hmm.
1: because it was about how I showed up collaboratively with others in the workspace. And yes, but it was about the quality of the work but that work wouldn't have happened unless I had the connection. So I think for young people coming in, knowing who you are, but also being gentle with yourself and creating the space to be gentle with others means there's a different level of connection. That means there's a different level of opportunity and and doors that are open to you. Mm -hmm. And it transforms the nature of your marketability because you are a desired quantity. You are a, they want you in that space because you help create that space.
0: So would that would be your advice for your next generation of leaders? So that the leaders that are coming up now, what would be your advice? What would be
1: my advice? Patience with yourself and patience with others. Don't assume anything mm-hmm. and don't jump to judgment. You can discern, but don't jump to judgment. And The less judgmental you are, the more opportunity you have for insight. And it allows you choice. You can then choose to engage with someone. You can choose to avoid them. You can choose to differently navigate uh, a challenge or a, a, a crisis, but patience and gentleness with self. But also do not be Do not be afraid to reach out first. Do not be afraid to extend the hand or to invite into space. Don't be selfish with your attention.
2: Mm.
1: Be generous with them. And that's philosophical. You can do all sorts of things to acquire skills, but I would say work on your character first and foremost. And if you work on character, and if you look at yourself as being, as having a moral structure, and living an ethical way of putting integrity first, of having compassion, of being honest, but also being patient and gentle in your communication. And to, yes, fight for the things that you believe are right, but create community around that and do it alongside others, then you're better off. That will set you up for a career. But it also means that you're exercising the knowing who you are, but you're working on that. Mm. That will also again open up doors for expressing the purpose of your life. Mm. But work on character. That skills will come. Character, do that work and the rest will fall into place much more easily. It won't be easy, but it'll be more easy.
0: And mm. um, I'd like to say we you heard it here first. Because <laughs> you know I think everything that you've just said uh, is hugely valuable to hear and you want to hear it when you're when you're when you're coming up for your career. And I think you need to hear these lessons from someone who's been there, done it and hugely successful with, with, you know, where they've been and what they've done, Um, you know. And uh, I wish I'd heard it when I was a bit younger. I really, really do. So tell me, what would you say if we cut you in half? um, ah, uh, What would your superpowers be?
1: Oh, first sight. I see things for the, for what they are. My superpower. I'm powerful. I'm open Mm -hmm. and I'm wise. That's my superpower. And I bring those to teach. So I exercise it through teaching and I can teach anywhere, anytime, any place. This is a teaching moment, but I can listen and that can be a teaching moment because I'm also learning something. So I, you know, I'm also trying to teach myself, but I'm supposed to teach and I'm supposed to teach open-ish compassion and love. Mm. At, the, at the end of the day, that's what it is. Mm. It is character. That's my superpower. Mm. Sounds crazy, but I, I mean, it sounds crazy, but that is it. So I see things for what they are, but I appreciate them for what they are as well. Mm. And I think that first sight with appreciation and honoring and valuing it is my superpower.
0: Absolutely brilliant.
1: Yeah, because everything else is just a skill.
0: Yeah, love it, love it. So I'm gonna, final question for you. Um, If you were to choose a person, who you would like to hear on this disruptive podcast, who would it be and why?
1: Samantha Emery. Okay. Sam yeah. is a regulatory and payments genius. She's a former regulator. Uh, she's now payments guru, so to speak. But she is also, and was a former top-notch elite athlete Um, but she's also a woman of color navigating finance and her sensitivity to the importance of of opportunity and of fight and tenacity I'd love to hear her perspective on how you navigate career especially as uh, as a woman, and as a woman of color, mm,
0: I think that's brilliant. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go and tap her up. <laughs> I absolutely am. I want to hear that too.
1: I will help you hunt her down. <laughs> we hunt. We're on the hunt.
0: <laughs> Watch out, Sam. Listen, I want to thank you so much for coming on this podcast. You have been a breath of fresh air. You've been, you've been open, vulnerable, and you know everything I would have hoped for. So I want to thank you so much.
1: Emma, thank you for creating the space for this. So I appreciate and I'm grateful that you invited me in. And thank you. Thank you. It's been a privilege.